Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps. Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray real quick before we jump in. Heavenly Father, just as Josh has been saying over and over again, you are sovereign. You are you love to interfere with history. You love to interfere in our worlds. You are not a creator that is far off. You don't just create and let us go. You are a creator that creates and sustains and interferes for a reason and for a purpose. And so I ask that regardless of where we are at, regardless of our thoughts about you or our failings, I ask that you would this morning, through the power of your Holy Spirit, interfere. Give me words to speak that you want me to speak. As we read your word, let us hear it for what it actually is, which is your word. Please, we're at your mercy. Interfere this morning. Give us what we need. We need a word from you. There's a lot of us hurting, confused, and it feels like maybe you are silent. And so I ask, Lord Jesus, through the work of your Holy Spirit, please speak today. Please interfere today and bless us through the preaching of your word. Please interfere for us. We believe in you. We know that you've come to destroy the works of the devil. We ask that you would do that in our lives. That you would soon crush the head of the devil under our feet. Please be with us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, we've been going through this little mini-series of just kind of picking different Old Testament books. And the reason why we were doing this was to... Better as we start, you know, the year off, some of us are doing Bible reading plans. And when we go through the Old Testament, what will happen is people tend to give up when certain books get a little harder or a little more confusing. And so, like Eric teaching on Exodus, we hope that that would help you as you saw the big picture of what Exodus means and how it relates to us it would help you to persevere through your Bible reading. You know, because we get to certain books and it makes it hard. And we get to certain Old Testament things and it's like the stories are cool, but it just doesn't make sense or maybe it's not for us. And so I hope that as we've been going through these different Old Testament books, that you see that the God that we serve today is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That though... He was interacting with a specific group of people, the Jews, in the Old Testament. We are a part of that family as we're grafted in through faith into that family. And so as we look at these Old Testament scriptures, it should encourage us because these are, one, our, our ancestors, but two, 
It's leading us up and should encourage us that the same God that got them through is the same God that's going to get us through. Amen? And this book of Esther, I love the book of Esther. I read it, well, at least a couple times a year. It's really fun because it's just a really, really good story. And so if you've never read Esther, I would encourage you this week or even sometime this month, this coming month, read it and just enjoy it. Because I'm not going to do a good job in letting you enjoy it the way that God wrote it. All right? I'm just going to give a big picture. And it's going to be, I hope it's going to be fun. But it's so much better if you were to just take an hour to just read it yourself. It is so enjoyable. It's so funny. It's full of all this irony. And so please don't just let me say it to you. Read it for yourself. It's like me taking one of your favorite books and then just doing a highlight reel of it. That's not fun, all right? You want to enjoy the whole book. And so please, I just encourage you, read this book. It's really great. And I just hope that as I teach it a little bit, give you some pointers, it's just going to help you understand it more and enjoy the story more, okay? But before we enter into Esther, I want to give a big picture real quick. So this story happened about 100 years after the exile from Jerusalem. So when the Babylonian Empire took the Jews and about 50 years pass, Persia takes over and they let the Jews go back. Some Jews go back to Jerusalem and then there's some Jews like Esther and Mordecai that stay in, in Persia for some reason. So there's these Jews that they could have went back to Jerusalem, yet they stayed in Persia. They stayed under the rule of this king. It's kind of strange. And this story is starting, it starts us off in the third year of King Ahasuerus' or Artaxerxes' reign. And it goes to the twelfth year of his reign. And so this story is actually a nine-year span. And so it's good to know because when we read the scriptures, a lot of time passes, yet we think it's just like, man, this was just a couple days. And so this story is actually the chapters 1 through 3 are actually nine years that pass. And then what, what the author will do, he's going to zoom in in the middle of chapter 3, and now we're just going to see the 12th year of Ahasuerus' reign, and he's going to zoom in into that year and what God does in that year. Okay, so yeah, it's a nine-year span, and then the majority of the book is zoomed in on one year. And so we'll get into that a little bit. And one cool thing about this book, or odd thing about this book, is that this book is the only book in all of the Bible that does not mention either the Lord's name, which is Yahweh, or even mention the word God at all. Isn't that weird? So Song of Solomon is actually, it comes close. Song of Solomon never says the word God, but it does one time say the, the Lord's name, which is Yahweh. So Song of Solomon is the only book in the Bible that only says God's name once. But Esther is the only book in the Old Testament or in all of the scriptures that never says his name ever. So it's to leave us questioning why would the author do this. And before we jump into these things, I want to start at Genesis 3.15. And so if you're able to turn and to look at it, if you're familiar, this is right after the fall, 
that Adam and Eve give in to sin. They take of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they sin against the Lord. They sin against God. And God comes and curses the serpent. And this is what he says to him in the middle of his cursing him. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what God is saying there, and in Reformed theology, we would call this promise the covenant of grace. That's what our church is named after. It's the covenant of grace that God has made. From the beginning, he made this covenant with his people that he would one day bring a seed through the woman to crush the head of the serpent and that great serpent being the devil. And all of the scriptures is this picture of God preserving his people, God bringing his people out of slavery into freedom. And the way that he does that ultimately is through this snake crusher. And then we see in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to turn there, you don't have to if you don't want to, but Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, which was Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen? And so this was the Abrahamic covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham to give him a bunch of children and through those children bless all of the world. And then he also gives a curse. He says, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And I remember when I first got saved, it's going to sound like a tangent, but it's not. Um, when I first got saved, I heard an explanation of what the Bible is that seemed helpful in the beginning, but wasn't as I started to grow in maturity, was the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. Have you guys heard that before? It's like a cool little summary, but I don't think it's that helpful because what it makes it sound the scriptures are like is that it's just a bunch of commands for you to fulfill. That is not what the story of scripture is. The story of scripture is a redemptive story, calling a people out. They have sinned and given in to sin, and they are now, it seems as if the devil is winning and death has reigned all throughout creation, through all men. It's a redemptive story. God enters in in the first couple chapters, making a promise to them that he would crush the head of the serpent. Their greatest need he will fulfill. He doesn't say, all right, let me give you these instructions so that you can crush the head of the serpent. No, he goes, I will do that. And then he enters in to creation as people are being born again and again. And there's this man named Abram. He pulls them out of his household and he makes a covenant with him to preserve him. And the reason why I'm bringing these things up is because Esther is a really fun story. And if you read it, you will have a really good time. It's a great story. But if you don't know why it's there, you will just have fun with no purpose. And so the reason why Esther is here 
is it's going to show, again, God preserving his people. And even when he's silent, he's still preserving his people. And those who curse Israel will be cursed. And he defeats the enemies of Israel. Amen? He defeats the enemies of us. Whoever comes against us because we are his, he will curse. He will take care of. And so Esther is a story of God's faithfulness. Though he seems silent, he is faithful to preserve them and to handle their greatest enemies. Amen? And so it's a fun story, but don't miss those facts. It's about God preserving and taking care of them, even when he's silent. And it's really cool is that Esther is one of the last books to be written in the Old Testament. And I think this is really cool. It's one of the last books to be written in the Old Testament. And God's not mentioned at all. And they're about to go through hundreds and hundreds of years of silence where there's no prophet. And I think it's an encouragement that you're going to go through silence right now. I'm going to give you this book where I seem silent, but I'm working. You're going to go through silence. Just know that even no, no matter how loud the silence is, I'm working. Isn't that cool? I find that really, really encouraging and exciting. And just to see his care for his people, he gave them a book when they were going to go through years and years of silence. He gave them a book that never mentioned his name, yet he was working. Just like when they were going through real life, we might never hear God's name or see him working miraculously, yet he is through regular means. Amen? All right, so let's start looking at Esther. So again, it's about 50 years after some Israelites went back to Jerusalem, and there's some Israelites, Jews, that are still under this Persian empire. They, they ended up staying because it's their home now, and they seem to be assimilated into the culture, yet God is going to preserve them. And it starts, if you look at verse 1, it starts with this backdrop of this king. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, that's, that name is so hard to say, I'm just going to say that. Whew. Everybody says it different too. You can look it up, it's like everybody's saying it different. All right, Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, and this is the first marker of what year it is, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. So he's this great king. It starts out with just how much he rules. He's like, man, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So he's a big deal. And what he does, he's like, I, I'm doing so great. I'm so powerful. I'm going to throw a 180-day party for people. Isn't that crazy? So it, it's not that everybody's there for 180 days every single day. It's that he's probably throwing this huge party in his kingdom that people can come and go as they please. And he's just feeding them and rejoicing with them and enjoying life, showing how great he is, that they would see every thing he has, the power he has, the riches he has. And that's why it starts with even mentioning 
certain things he has. It says he has couches of gold, which I wonder what that meant because that does not sound comfortable at all. But that'd be pretty baller, though. Like, I'd be, I'd be down to have a couch of gold just to, like, show it off. But you know what I mean? Like, it, it's funny because it starts out this way, showing how much he rules, how much he has, and how also generous he seems. And it's really cool is his name, Ahasuerus, or Artaxerxes, means ruler of men or ruler of heroes. And so we start this book with this ruler of men. He's ruling over 127 provinces. He's balling. He's doing great. He's throwing this fat party, pH fat. And he's, he's doing great. And then he throws another party for seven days, a more intimate party in the court of his garden. And what does he do? He gets a little too drunk. On the seventh day, he's feeling merry. And what does he want to do? He's like, man, have you guys seen my wife? <laughs> she looks so good. Man, check her out. He's like, hey, eunuchs, go get her. And so he's just probably not, I mean, he's probably doing good, you know, in the sense of like happy. But she's throwing a separate party with her girls, probably balling out too, you know, having fun. And the eunuchs go up to her and go, hey, uh, King Ahasuerus is calling you. And what's interesting, this is really kind of shocking. Look at, um, let's see here. Oh, yeah, right here, verse 11. So, 111. So, he tells the eunuchs, all seven of them, to go to Queen Vashti in the verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And all the commentaries that I read, which is kind of weird, is that they, they say they leave... The author's probably leaving it vague that he's wanting her to just come with her crown. So think about this. This king, ruler of men, so rich, so powerful. And again, it has this backdrop. And the shocker is that he is the ruler of men, yet he can't even control his wife. But also the shocker is how crude and wicked this guy is. He's trying to show off his wife to show off his power. And man, praise God that she said no. You know, praise God that, like I didn't know feminists were back then, but man, there's a feminist Vashti. But so all you feminists, well, calm your little feminist hearts. It's not a feminist book, but it is really cool. I praise God that she shot him down, that he was going, hey, check out my wife. She's beautiful to look at check her out, and she goes, no. And what's crazy is the book is starting with this king that's in charge, and then we quickly see he's not in charge, and then throughout the rest of the book, he never makes any decrees on his own. He never decides anything on his own. It's always somebody else doing it for him. And so even when his wife says no, what happens? He brings his wise men, and his wise men go, hey, um, man, if my wife hears about this, <laughs> this is going to be bad. It's like, she's not going to do the dishes. You should probably, like, make a decree that says she's gone and that every man is a master of his own house because this is not going to go well for me. I got a lot of daughters. Like, they're all going to be disrespectful to me. And so it's just interesting. He's not in control. 
And what's so cool is this guy's name is mentioned over 28 times in the book, so it's a lot. And his kingdom, and it seems like it's all up to him to decide these things. It seems like it's all up to his signet ring that makes all these decisions. But if you're a believer, what's so cool is what your mind does and what your spiritual heart does is as you're reading this book, you fill in the blanks where God truly is working everywhere. This king who is the ruler of men truly rules none. This king who is the ruler of men can't even rule his own household. This king is, who is the ruler of men never makes a decree on his own because his heart and his plans are all handled by the works of God. Amen? So it's so cool. Even though he's absent, us who are Christians are filling in the blanks everywhere, seeing God take control of this king, seeing God make this king do certain things to get his people somewhere. And the first act that we see is he gets Vashti out of there, makes the king do something really foolish to get Vashti out of there so that he can get this young girl Esther in there who is a Jew. So let's look at chapter 2. And it's really cool. Chapter 2, 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Again, it shows his control. He wakes up out of his drunken stupor, it seems like, and he's like, dang it, what did I do? Because he's not in control. Somebody else is. And then what happens in chapter 2, he wants to do this beauty contest. Again, his wise men come to him and say, hey, um, king, you're really sad. Let's get a bunch of young, young girls to you know, do a beauty contest. You pick the best one. You pick the best one. It'll make you happy. And it's so cool because he could have just gotten another wife and just picked her. But God, through his providential care to get Esther in there, he's like, let's do a beauty contest. I got this. I got a girl. So what he does is they do this beauty contest, and we see this young girl, Esther, who is named Hadassah. That's her Jewish name. But because they're either assimilated or trying to hide something, she goes by Esther, which is a Persian name meaning star. Isn't that cool? And if you look at verse 9, or sorry, verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai, her uncle, who was her caretaker, had commanded her not to make it known. So she's going through this beauty contest, and she doesn't give her Jewish name. She takes a Persian name, which is Esther, meaning star, because her uncle says, hey, don't tell them that you're Jewish, because that's not going to go well. Don't tell them that... I'm your uncle, because that's not going to go well. Don't remind them of who your people are. Just be Esther, the Persian. Just be Esther, the star. Be Esther, the beautiful girl. And it's going to be cool because this seems weird. Like, think about if you were to do this with your daughter or your niece or something. It seems kind of cringy that you would do this or that somebody would do this, yet God is working through it. It's crazy. So she is a young Jew going through this beauty contest. She starts to win favor in the sight of this guy, Haggai. 
who's a, one of the eunuchs in charge of the young virgins, is what it says, the young ladies. She starts to win favor from him, and she keeps moving up in the ranks. And then there's this time where now all the women are going to have one night with King Ahasuerus, and then in the morning he's going to release her, that lady. And now it's Esther's turn. Look at verse, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except with Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, so again, another marker, the seventh year of King Ahasuerus' reign. So it was, what, five years or four years past since um, this Vashti thing? The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. And so the king's heart is merry again, glad he's got his queen. That's better than Vashti. Just as the eunuchs said, let's get somebody better than Vashti. And it's this girl, Esther. And again, us as Christians see why or how is because the favor of the Lord was on her. He wanted her in this position. It was not because he knew she was the best. It was because God's in control. Not because King Ahasuerus is in control, but because God sits on the throne. He's the true king, even when he's not mentioned. And then, so now we're in the seventh year of his reign. And in the seventh year after, there's probably some time that's passed. But what happens next, there's this plot to kill the king. Two of his eunuchs want to kill King Ahasuerus. And what happens through God's providential care, her uncle Mordecai hears this. So in chapter 2, 19 through the rest of the chapter, he hears about this plot to kill the king. And you know what Mordecai does as a good, caring person? As he goes, tells Esther, and Esther goes and tells the king, in the name of Mordecai. So she goes, hey, this guy Mordecai told me that there's a plot to kill you. And what's interesting, again, look at verse 20. After she became queen, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. So as she's coming to the king, the king again doesn't know that she is his niece. So she's just telling him, hey, this guy Mordecai saved your life. There's this plot. And they go and inquire, and they find out it's true, and they kill these two guys. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It's a weird consequence. So after this happens, you would think Mordecai would get blessed or get raised to a higher power. But verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So it's really strange. This happens. Mordecai does this great deed. 
amazing deed, saves the life of the king, the Persian king. And then Haman gets advanced. Haman gets raised to an honor, a seat of honor. Isn't that weird? And Haman, it's interesting, it gives his lineage. It says the Agite, the son of Hamadatha. The reason why it gives this lineage is because Agag, or however you say his name, is an Amalekite. And an Amalekite is an enemy of the Jews. So if you can, look with me at Exodus 17. Exodus 17, verses 14 through 16. So this is that battle, if you guys remember, where Moses is holding up his hands, and every time he puts them down, the Amalekites start to win. Every time he puts them up, Israel starts to prevail. And so they, you know, hold his hands up. That interesting story. And at the end of that story, starting in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so God is saying, even in Exodus, that the Israelites, the Jews, are going to have war with Amalek for generations, for generations, generation to generation. And here, after Mordecai does this great deed, who rises to power? Their greatest enemy, the Amalekites, this guy Haman, his father, his ancestors being Agag, who Samuel ended up killing in 1 Samuel 15. And so it's this plot twist in this beginning that seems like it's, it's a bummer. It's like, dang it, now again, their greatest enemy rises to power. Yet God is going to do something. And so this greatest enemy rises to power. And then if you go back to Esther, the king makes this decree that everybody should bow down and pay homage to Haman. And what he does is as he's walking around the city, as he's walking around, he wants everybody to bow down to him and pay homage to him. Yet Mordecai, whether because he doesn't want to praise anybody other than his God or because he's an enemy of Haman, who knows, but he doesn't bow down and pay homage to him. And so Haman gets angry and he wants to make a plan to not only kill Mordecai, but all of his people. And so he sends these other people, these servants, to inquire and find out who the people of Mordecai are. And he finds out that he's a Jew. And so Haman's mad. And Haman, I'm pretty sure, knows of his history that the Jews have been destroying his family for years. And he wants payback. And so about five years pass, which is crazy. So look at verse 7. So that was the seventh year of King Ahasuerus' reign. Haman gets brought up to a place of honor. Mordecai doesn't honor him, so he plots to kill him and kill his whole family, his, all his people. Verse 7, chapter 3, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, 
and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So they're casting these lots to find out. So Haman and his people are casting lots to find out when's the best time to kill the people of Mordecai. Isn't that crazy? And he's been, he's been doing this probably for five years, plotting how to do this. It's just crazy. Think about that time. So his bitterness is growing more and more. And day after day, year after year, Mordecai is not bowing down to him. And that bitterness is growing stronger and stronger. And his anger is getting stronger and stronger. And he just wants to kill him. All he wants to do is just destroy his people. And so he casts lots to find out when's the best time. And he's casting lots the first month, which is the month of Nisan, which is the time when the Jews would have been celebrating Passover. So where all the Jews are in their house, Haman's over there casting lots. Man, when do I kill these people? When I, oh, this guy that doesn't pay homage to me, the guy that doesn't honor me. And he's casting lots, wondering, trying to find from a providential sovereign king when to destroy Israel, when to destroy these Jews. And it's interesting he lands on the 13th day of the 12th month of that year. So it's, you know, the first month, and he goes, hey, cast lots, it's going to be the 12th month. And he goes to King Ahasuerus, and he's like, hey, there's these people. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the province of your kingdom, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So what's happening is he casts lots, when to decide, and he, he comes to the king, he's like, these, these people don't listen to you. And it's really they don't bow down and pay homage to him, and it's just Mordecai. But he makes this plot because it was the king's decree to bow down to Haman. And he doesn't do that. So he's like, hey, these guys aren't listening to you. They're a danger. You should probably get rid of them. And then he also says, I will give 10,000 talents, which is a lot of money. And the reason why he's doing that is probably because in chapter 2 where the king took taxes away because of Esther. So he took taxes away because of Esther to bless the people, which is funny. Now he doesn't have money to actually do this decree. So Haman's like, hey, I'll pay for it and we can destroy these people. And so Ahasuerus says, here's my signet ring, take it, make the decree, and use that money to kill these people. Isn't that crazy? And again, think about it. It's been five years, and Esther still hasn't revealed herself as a Jew. So the king doesn't know that Mordecai is actually plotting against Esther. Haman doesn't know he's plotting against Esther. Did I say Mordecai's plotting against Esther? Oh, I saw Daniel's face. He was like, he messed up. <laughs> yeah, so sorry. Haman is plotting to kill Esther. 
And Haman doesn't even know that he's doing that. Because she, for some reason, some providential reason, has kept it silent. Isn't that crazy? Think about that. Not letting your people known for that long. Being in this secular place, married to this king for that long, and keeping that a secret. Man, he doesn't want to meet his in-laws? Come on, what's up with this? So it's just crazy, and he's plotting this. He's going to kill them, and he makes it happen. And look at verse 15 of chapter 3. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So here they start sending these letters out in the first month because you know they need, it's a big province, so all these horses are being sent out to send this letter. And Haman and the king sit down to drink while the whole city is left in confusion. This enemy of the Jews has risen up when Mordecai should have rose up. And now the enemy of the Jew is seeking to destroy them. And it seems like God's not there. But this is where the story flips. It's really cool. So chapter 4. Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And you can't go into the gates with this sackcloth and ashes. And so, verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. She's like, hey, don't let it be known that you're a Jew. Don't let it be known that I'm a Jew. What are you doing? Cover up. You're going to die. And she inquires why he's doing this. He gives her the decree through the eunuch. He's like, give this to Esther. And she reads it. And she says to him, basically, that she's not going to do this. He's like, you should tell the king that you're a Jew. And she's been obeying him for years and years to not make her people known. And here he comes, tell him you're a Jew. And she's like, what? You've been telling me this for years. I'm not going to do that. It seems like she's not willing to do it. But then look at verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Isn't that cool? And so what Mordecai does is like, hey, if you're going to deny your faith, if you're going to deny your people, God will. He doesn't say God, though, 
but we see this glimpse into Mordecai's faith, Mordecai's trust, that he knows his people will be preserved. Why? Because God made a covenant with his people that he will crush the head of the serpent, that he will destroy all of God's people's enemies. God is faithful to fulfill his promise no matter how silent he is. And he says, you know what? Deliverance will rise up. I was just wanting you to be a part of it. And if you don't do this, your family will be blotted out. And so Esther takes the charge, and then she says, let's fast. And if you're a secular person, you would go, why do they fast? But because of us who have faith, we know what they're doing. Before she goes to the king, this ruler of men, she first approaches the real king, the real ruler of men, and she fasts for three days, pleading for her life to her God. Isn't that cool? And then she goes to the so-called ruler of men who is in so-called charge of what happens, but he's not. And so she goes to him, and in chapter 5, she goes to him and says, hey, um, if I've won favor in your sight, can I throw you and Haman a party? Can I throw you and Haman a feast? And he goes, yep, let's do it. Go get Haman. They go, and they start drinking, and they're having fun. And he goes, Esther, what is it? What do you want? You can have up to half of my kingdom. What is it? And she goes, well, come back tomorrow. Let's have another feast tomorrow, and then I'll do as you say. I'll tell you what I want. And then so they go home, and if you look at this, Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the, the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So this guy is like so excited. He's like, I'm the only one that was welcome to this feast. I'm the only one, me and the king. And then he goes home joyfully and excited and then he sees Mordecai and he's filled with wrath and anger and he's just like, I just want to kill this guy. And so he goes home and he goes to his wife Zeresh, what should I do? And they're like, hang him on the gallows, make a gallows super high and let's hang him on that. Let's kill him and then we'll kill all his people. And he's like, heck yeah. And then the next morning he goes. But that night, while he was plotting to kill, that night the king couldn't sleep. Look at chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So he's like, man, I can't sleep. Can you read me a bedtime story of all the good things people have done for me? And they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on him. The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows. So Mordecai's coming through the court and he's like, make this plan. I'm going to kill him. We're just going to do this Jew dirty right now. And then he's coming in and then the king's like, hey, whoever's in the court right now, we're going to have him honor Mordecai. And he's like, who's in there? They're like, they're looking through the blinds. Haman. And he's like, oh, great, my best guy. And then Haman comes in and he's like, hey, Haman, how would you bless who the king delights in the most? And Haman's like, 
He must be talking about me. Oh, I would say he can ride in on a horse that the king rides. He would roll around with robes, have the crown. He would have all these things. And the person who's riding around is going, this is the guy the king delights in. And then Haman's like, so it's me, right? And the king's like, okay, go and do everything you said. Don't leave anything out and do that to Mordecai, the Jew. And Haman goes home crying to his wife and children. This guy, that's a murderer. He's like, I just want to be comforted. Because it's the biggest plot twist of all of it. God saves Mordecai from being hanged. It's so cool. I got to wrap up because I could stay here for hours and I'm way over time. So let's go a little quicker. Sorry, that's my fault, not your guys's. But Mordecai gets praise and honor and he gets by his enemy walked through the city getting praised that he's the most delighted in by the king. Isn't that crazy? This Jew. And then that day, after he praises Mordecai around the city, they have a feast again with Esther. And Esther makes known her plan. She says, there's somebody, an enemy of my people, who's trying to destroy us. And I want to kill him. And he goes, who is it? And she goes, it's this wicked Haman. And then he, out of his drunken rage, he goes out, he's like kicking the garden, he's, Ugh! and he comes back, and what he sees is Haman on top of his wife. And he says, will Haman even assault the queen in my presence? And they kill him on the same gallows that he made for Mordecai. Plot twist. Because God is sovereign, and he preserves his people. And I got to I would just encourage you, study this book. It's so amazing. It's so great. Though he's silent, he's saving and preserving his people. And then what happened is anything the king decrees with his signet ring can't be overturned. So they had to make a plan to have it be overturned. And so what they did is Mordecai made a decree with the signet ring the same day in the 12th month of that year that any Jew can kill any of their enemies and defend themselves. And so, though the people, the enemies of the Jews can kill them, well, the Jews can now kill their enemies. And so, it's just basically, you can battle, you can kill them, you can destroy them. And he allows this decree to happen. And then look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. That's the key to this whole book. The reverse occurred. Because of this, the Jews were saved, and they started this whole party, this whole festival called Purim, which Pur means lot, and Purim means lots. Because of the lot that Haman cast, they named this celebration after that. Isn't that crazy? Because God is the one that though we cast lots, he makes them land. He decides what happens with those lots. He makes our steps and our plans, no matter how much we try. He's behind every decision. Even if a hair falls off my head right now, he said, let it be so. So no matter where you're at, you are in the hands of your heavenly father and he cares for you so much because you are his people. 
What does this book mean to us? Yes, it was to the Jews going into this silent period. But it's also for us because we are grafted into those people through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And on the day when he died, the apostles, the disciples, went away confused. The city was left in confusion. We thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to be the one. And Jesus enters into the road of Emmaus, and he enters into a conversation with these disciples, and he reveals himself when they thought he was gone, when they thought he lost. Well, what happened is the greatest reverse in all of history occurred, and he crushed the head of the serpent, and he came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. So we believers trust in that God who can reverse anything that's not in our favor because he's promised it for us, for our greatest need to come crush the head of the serpent. Amen? So no matter where you're at right now, you feel like you might have some enemies, just know through the personal work of Jesus, he can reverse it because he cares for you. His whole purpose of this book is to show you that he's preserving his people. And he does that through the work of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and your kindness towards us. I thank you for how you speak to us every, every Lord's Day. I thank you that I get to be the person that gets to read your word this morning and bring it to your people. I'm thankful for that. I just ask that you would please help us, help us to know you're there even when we feel like you're silent. Help us to know that you're there even if we've assimilated with this culture more than we should, that you would call us back. Will you help us to hear your voice again? Will you help us to know that you have your eyes on us? Will you help us to know that our lives are in your hands? That our greatest needs have been met in the work of your Son? And that you promise us that one day we will also crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will be crushed under our feet. Help us conquer. Help us take over. For what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing, not sword, not famine, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing we're going through can separate us. Encourage us this morning. Please, Lord Jesus, encourage us this morning. Give us what we need to live the life that you call us to live this week. We love you. Thank you so much for reversing the curse, for that reverse that occurred. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message.